Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 1. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the people, places, and things found in the book of Numbers, in that episode covering the history of Jericho. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning the history around the book of Deuteronomy, starting with a summary of the first four chapters of the book. And with that, let's get started. Having made it through the first four books of the Old Testament, much of what's in Deuteronomy will seem very familiar, in some cases to the point of redundancy, like the almost verbatim repeat of the Ten Commandments. Almost exactly the same, but not quite. And that makes sense when you consider that the word Deuteronomy is from two Greek base words, deutero meaning second, and nomos, which translates to law. So, the second law. But that can be a bit confusing, as it wasn't anything really new, just a restatement. So, alternatively translated, a repetition of the law. At least that's what the Christians call it. In the Torah, it's named Ale Vaderim, which are the first two words of the book in Hebrew, and translate to, these are the words, meaning the words of Moses. One more note before earnestly starting. Deuteronomy was very important throughout the history found in the Old Testament. As of all of the five books of the Pentateuch, it's quoted more often by the Old Testament prophets than any other book of the law. The overall theme of the book is Moses' last words to the Israelite people. He knows what's about to happen and wants them to be reminded of everything they should have learned in the 40 years since leaving Egypt. Overall, he tells them that God will bless and reward those who are obedient. And there's another side to the equation. If they disobey, they will be cursed. That's the big message. He would deliver it in three addresses to the people. The first one the subject of this week's episode and running through chapter 4 of the text. These were given, likely orally and recorded by a scribe, are written by Moses himself when the Israelites were encamped in Moab on the west bank of the Jordan, waiting to cross the river into Canaan, probably very close to Jericho, the subject of last week's episode. The addresses were also to prepare the people to be led by Joshua and prepping them for the battles to come in Canaan. Specifically, Moses didn't want a repeat of what happened when they sent spies into Canaan, and the people's trust in God faltered, resulting in 40 years of denied entry into the promised land. Chapter 1 kicks off with Moses recounting the history of the Israelites since they left Egypt. This is the beginning of the first address to the people. Moses narrates the most important events in the wanderings in the wilderness, and reminded Israel that they must not forget the laws given to them at Mount Sinai, though it's recorded as Mount Horeb in the text. We're immediately told that this narrative was delivered in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month. In my mind, this means 39 years, 10 months, and one day had passed. So the people were about to end the 40 years of being disallowed from the promised land, a punishment imposed by God after the return of the spies, 
when they were too concerned with the giants and travails they would face if they entered the land. Moses also recounts what God said to him at Mount Horeb. And the choice of this location is the subject of debate. Some consider Horeb to be the same as Sinai, while others think that they were two different, distinct places. In Deuteronomy, Moses retells the people of the land God promised to them. He then reminds them of how the hierarchical organization of the nation, from the tribal leaders all the way down to those charged over a mere ten people, how all of that came into being. He does the same to refresh their memory on how the judges came about. Moses circles back, retelling of how the spies were sent into the valley of Eshcol, returning with the fruits of the land. Of course, the people were fearful, and Moses recounts how he tried to get them to proceed, despite their fear. Then, there's something slightly new. We're told what God said to Moses regarding the two spies who were not discouraged. Not one of these evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his descendants I will give the land on which he set foot, because of his complete fidelity to the Lord. Moses continues, Even with me the Lord was angry on your account, saying, You also shall not enter there. Joshua, son of Nun, your assistant, shall enter there. Encourage him, for he is the one who will secure Israel's possession of it. One other new thing in here is that Moses tells the people that at least part of the reason God wouldn't allow him to enter the promised land was because the people had resisted God's assurances. And then the people rebelled, thinking they could now fight their way into Canaan, despite God's punishment. He remembers telling them that they should not try to fight their way in, God wouldn't be with them, and they will lose. Of course, that's what happens. Overall theme of the first chapter sets the stage for the rest of the book. It's Moses' assessment of how well Israel followed God's instructions. The Israelite people failed many times to obey God. Moses feared they would fail again once he died, so he gave the extensive direction and warnings found in Deuteronomy. Chapter 1 ends in the middle of a sentence, an obvious reminder that the original Hebrew text was not organized into chapters and verses. These were added later. I tried to find why, when this text was originally organized, chapter 2 didn't begin a dozen or so words before, but came up empty. Somebody at some point made the decision, and it stuck around for thousands of years. Before getting into chapter 2, a reminder that in the beginning of this episode, I did start with the warning that Deuteronomy was extremely redundant to the prior few books, so just bear with me as I work through the text. Do note, though, that the text does serve a purpose. Forty years has passed, and by God's direction, with the exception of Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, and potentially their families, None of the adults who are now alive were around when the Israelites left Egypt. To us, it's just a few books in the narrative, but to them, it was their history. A history that was almost completely reliant on oral tradition, and most likely needed a bit of reminding how they got to where they were. 
Chapter 2 continues Moses' recounting of the early history of the wanderings. God directs them to head towards the Red Sea, which is in the opposite direction from the Promised Land. They are then to go towards Mount Seir, but they are told the land was many centuries previously given to Esau and has since passed to his descendants. Because of this, they shouldn't fight the people who live there and instead buy from them whatever food and water they need. From there, they went into Moab and are told something similar. Since the land was given so long ago to Abraham's nephew Lot, they are not to disturb the people living there. Embedded in this part about Moab is a bit of historical detail. It reads, Do not harass Moab or engage them in battle, for I will not give you any of its land as a possession. Since I have given Ar as a possession to the descendants of Lot, the Ilmelm, a large and numerous people, as tall as the Anakim, had formerly inhabited it. Like the Anakim, they are usually reckoned as Rephim, though the Moabites called them Ilmelm. Moreover, the Horem had formerly inhabited Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them destroying them and settling in their place, as Israel has done in the land that the Lord gave them as a possession. Now then, proceed to cross over the Wadi Zerd. And I'm going to pause on this part for a second. Most modern researchers think parts of this passage were added at a later date due to one specific detail. And while in an audio format, like this podcast, It's important to note that the portion thought to have been added later is enclosed in parentheses in the text, at least in the New Revised Standard Version and the NIV. The King James lacks the parentheses, and it's the part that reads, But the descendants of Esau dispossessed them, destroying them and settling in their place, as Israel has done in the land that the Lord gave them as a possession. As you can see in here, at the time the other parts of the chapter were written, the Israelites had yet to cross the Jordan and take possession of the promised land in Canaan. The thinking is that this passage was added later for clarification, hence the parentheses. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses tells us something new. The time between Kadesh Barnea and until they crossed the Wadi Zerd was 38 years. Remember, they were at Kadesh when the spies returned. As soon as the last of the doubting generation die off, the Israelites are told to cross the boundary of Moab at Ar. They will then pass through the land held by the Ammonites. But since they are also descendants of Lot, they too are to be left undisturbed. Right after this, there's another history lesson found in parentheses and explains how the land came to be occupied by the Ammonites. It reads, It also is usually reckoned as a land of the Rephim. Rephim formerly inhabited it, though the Ammonites called them the Zumzumnum, a strong and numerous people, as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites, so that they could dispossess them and settle in their place. He did the same for the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, by destroying the Horam before them, so they could dispossess them and settle in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, 
who had lived in settlements in the vicinity of Gaza. The Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Unlike the other parenthetically referenced section, this one does not contain a passage that would indicate it was written later. But the style is the same as the earlier passage, maybe also added to clarify. And embedded in here are a few places and people that are new, so I will cover them later. Back in Deuteronomy, next they would run into the Amorites, led by King Sihon. God tells them they will defeat this king, but when they encounter him, the Israelites ask to be allowed to pass peacefully through his territory. He denies their request. At first blush, this would seem that they were going against the will of God. After all, God had just told them that they would fight and defeat the Amorites. But, if you'll allow me to skip ahead just for a second, the offering of a peace treaty is mandated in Deuteronomy 20, which reads, When you draw near to a town to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. If it accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all of the people in it shall serve you as forced labor. If it does not submit to you peacefully, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord gives it into your hand, you shall put all of its males to the sword. You may, however, take as booty the women, the children, livestock, and everything else in the town, all its spoil. You may enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Do note that there is a clause in the next passage that says the offer of a peace treaty is only given to those cities and towns outside of the promised land, and the Amorites are specifically mentioned as needing to be annihilated. But the Israelites were following the spirit of God's offer of peace before warfare. Back in Deuteronomy 2, the Israelite and Amorite armies battle at Hahaz, and the Israelites emerge victorious, with King Sihon dying in the process. God uses this Israelite victory to enhance their warfighting reputation among their regional foes. In this case, they captured all the Amorite towns, and in each they kill all of the men, women, and children. No one survived. They then seized the livestock and plundered the towns. Chapter 2 ends with reiteration that the Israelites were able to destroy all they came across, but left the Ammonites alone. Chapter 3 continues the repetition of the historic Israelite victories, this time with the story of King Og of Bashan. In this case, there's no mention of the offer of peace, and the Israelites do to Helm and his territory exactly as they had done earlier to Sihon, capturing 60 towns along with an unspecified number of villages which are described as having high walls, double gates, and bars. Everyone is killed, and the spoils of war are collected. Throughout the chapter, there are several more historic tidbits added in parentheses, including the size of Og's bed, which I've discussed before. Here, too, and just like in the last chapter, the wording makes it seem like it was added later. The actual quote in the passage is, In fact, his bed... An iron bed can still be seen at Rabbah of the Ammonites. In here, along with the other couple of chapters, are a few new people and places that I'll cover later. Places like Argob, and people such as the Mahakathites. In the middle of the chapter, 
we're retold of the territory given to the tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad, with a restating of the geographic boundaries. Do note that in the text, Manasseh was named Machir, and Machir was the son of Manasseh. But this is because half of Manasseh would be west of the Jordan, this half, while the other half was east, and given to another son of Manasseh. All the territory allotted here was west of the river, as the crossing of the Jordan has yet to occur. The tribes given the early allotment were reminded that, when the time came, they would be expected to help others conquer all of Canaan, and were given a little more detail. Apparently, every adult male was expected to fight, as the only people, and animals for that matter, that could be left behind when the battle came were their wives, children, and livestock. The King James actually gets a bit more specific, and instead of livestock, it reads cattle could be left behind. Though I'm not sure how much help sheep would have been in a fight. Then Moses makes an appeal to God. He prays, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your might. What God in heaven or on earth can perform deeds and mighty acts like yours? Let me cross over to see the good land beyond the Jordan that good hill country, and the Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account, meaning the Israelites, and would not heed me. God responds, Enough from you. Never speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look around you to the west, to the north, to the south, and to the east. Look well, for ye shall not cross over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him because it is he who shall cross over at the head of this people, and who shall secure their possession of the land that you will see. Chapter 3 concludes with Moses recounting how they encamped at the valley opposite of Beth Peor, another place to cover. Chapter 4 begins with Moses telling the people they must listen and learn to the statutes he is relaying to them, laws that are coming straight from God. If they choose not to, there will be a repeat of the Baal Peor incident, an event that I covered in the last chapter of the podcast and can be found in Numbers 25. That's the stick. He also offers a carrot. If they do obey, then other kingdoms and religions will witness it and know the Israelites are both wise and discerning. Moses recounts how the people heard the voice but did not see God at Mount Horeb and how God gave them the Ten Commandments. And then God instructed Moses to teach these to the people. He then warns them not to make any sort of idol, an implicit reference to the earlier false idol of the golden calf. And he gets really specific. No animal, no bird, no fish, nothing that creeps on the ground. Don't worship the sun, moon, or stars. All of this because they didn't see God so they shouldn't choose something like what's found in the list to represent him. Then Moses tells the people he's not allowed to enter the promised land because of them, saying, The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he vowed that I should not cross the Jordan, and I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving for your possession. For I'm going to die in this land without crossing over the Jordan, but you're going to cross over it to take possession of that good land. Then there's a warning that will play out several hundred years later, in the events leading up to the Babylonian exile. The part in Deuteronomy 4 reads, 
When you've had children and children's children and become complacent in the land, if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything, thus doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the people. Only a few of you will be left among the nations when the Lord will lead you. Which is eerie enough, but Moses then tells the people what will happen during the exile. There you will serve other gods made by human hands, objects of wood and stone that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. From there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and soul. In your distress, when all these things have happened to you in time to come, you will return to the Lord your God and heed him, because the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will neither abandon you nor destroy you. He will not forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them. Of course, with any sort of premonition like this, there will be skeptics. And the skeptics in this case think this part of the chapter was written after the Babylonian exile. You can make up your own mind. Moses reminds the people how God has been involved in their lives and how this sets them apart from the other people of the world. In doing this, he gives them example after example, from freeing them from the Egyptians to speaking to them from fire at Sinai, and how God did all of this because of a promise he made to their ancestors. This part wraps up with the reminder that God is the one and only. Moses offers a refresher lesson on cities of refuge, naming three such places, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan, all east of the Jordan, in the territory he allotted in chapter 3. The last handful of verses takes the tone of a later third-person narrator, and essentially sums up what Moses told the people, with an emphasis on the boundaries of the land. And that's it for chapter 4 and the end of Moses' first address to the people, which makes it a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the summary of the book of Deuteronomy, kicking off with Moses' second address, which is also the second recounting of the Ten Commandments. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, Subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.